Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us, we'll be enlightened, that we will be able to uh, participate with all that Christ has done for us and experience true regeneration and healing of our hearts and minds. We will be faithful and effective witnesses for you as we go out from this place. We also want to pray for the Granadas, Barbara Granada, who was uh, hospitalized last night, that your healing hand will be upon her and the outcome will be in accordance with your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And this week we are doing uh, lesson number uh, 11 in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions, and the lesson title this week is Freedom from Addictions. The uh, memory verse for this week is John 8.36, which says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does that Bible text mean, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, in light of the addict? If somebody comes to you with an addiction... Whatever the addiction is, we're going to get into different addictions here in a moment. If you pull out your Bible and read this verse to them, can they walk away free? I've claimed the Bible promise of the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed, and that will cure their addiction. I mean, what would you do? Is that what you would do? do you, if you were suffering with an addiction and you went to a friend struggling and they pulled out the Bible verse and quoted the verse, would you feel encouraged? I'm just wondering how, I'm not, I'm not disputing it, I'm not saying it's not true. Of course we know that the sun sets us free, we're free indeed. How does it, I guess I'm asking, how does it become applicable in the real world? How, do, how does this become something we can utilize in real time? Yes? He gives us the strength to be free, but do we give us the freedom? Okay, so she says... I mean, we have to have a little word here. Okay, so she's saying he will give us the strength, but do we choose? Yes? Um, gives an illustration of a young man who was addicted and came to a prayer meeting in uh, Florida and basically was set free at that time because he gave his heart to the Lord and he basically gave up his drug addiction at that time. I think he maybe had a couple of setbacks, but he's drug-free now. And I thought that was pretty remarkable because you don't hear that kind of miraculous healing so quickly, but God does wonderful things. Wendell. We all hear stories of those who struggle with addictions and who kind of walk away from addictions or whatever. But if someone came to you with pneumonia and you gave them antibiotics, would they walk away free indeed? First dose? Right. <laughs> um, I think some, to some extent, we, I would apply the same concept to addictions that I would to any other illness. Well, let's, uh, let's explore this further here this morning. This is out of Councils on Health, page 288. It says, All heaven is interested in the salvation of man and is ready to pour upon him her beneficent gifts if he will comply with the conditions Christ has made. Hmm. Are there conditions to salvation? Conditions to salvation. Are there conditions a sinner or addict must comply with in order to gain freedom? Are there conditions? Jesus said, or, or is it that God, God chooses who gets free and who doesn't? You know, Jesus, it says in uh, Romans 9 that um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What then shall we say? If God, is God unjust? Not at all. For, if, for as Moses said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
do we have a choice or does God choose? He has compassion and helps some get free. And like the one that Derek talked about, others go and pray and pray and pray and don't get free because God is not compassionate. We have a choice. We have a choice. Well, he had a change of heart. He really wanted to be free. And he chose to make the right decisions. He left the friends that he had and so forth. This is out of um, Conflict and Courage, page 71. It says, There was no arbitrary choice on the part of God by which Esau was shut out from the blessing of salvation. The gifts of grace through Christ are free to all. There is no election but one's own by which any may perish. Every soul is elected who will work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. He is elected who will put on the armor and fight the good fight of faith. He is elected who will watch into prayer, who will search the scriptures and flee from temptation. He is elected who will have faith continually and who will be obedient to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of of God. The provisions of redemption are free to all. The results of redemption will be enjoyed by those who have complied with the conditions. What do you hear that saying? That, that, that there's something we have to do to experience freedom? If we're an addict and we claim the promise, if the Lord sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Is that enough? Or is there more involved? More involved. More involved. What else would you say is involved? Our acceptance of God's promises. Our acceptance of God's promises. Russell? The free exercise of our willpower. The free exercise of our willpower. Oh, yeah. Smoker has to exercise his willpower not to buy a pack of cigarettes. The, the internet porn addict has to exercise his willpower not to access a website. The alcoholic has to exercise her willpower not to take another drink. In doing so, that willpower becomes strengthened. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I believe in the willpower part of it, and without question, but there is another factor that comes in. And I've experienced it, and I probably a lot of other people have. When you are so determined that you really want to do the right thing, even though your, your inclinations are otherwise, and, and there's that conflict, and you sincerely pray that the Lord will give you the victory over it, it will come. But you have to really want it. And, and, you know, and the Lord will intervene sort of in a miraculous way where you just all of a sudden you, you realize you don't want to do that anymore. So a desire change. But you have to be determined that that's what you want, you know. Listen to this and see what you hear. This is uh, AG 136. It says, The blessings of the new covenant are grounded purely on mercy in forgiving unrighteousness and sins. All who humble their hearts confessing their sins will find mercy and grace and assurance. God... Has God, in showing mercy to the sinner, ceased to be just? Has he dishonored his holy law, and will he henceforth pass over the violation of it? God is true. He changes not. The conditions of salvation are ever the same. Life, eternal life, is for all who obey God's law. Under the new covenant, the conditions by which eternal life may be gained are the same as under the old old covenant perfect obedience in the new a better covenant christ has fulfilled the law for the transgressors of of the law if they will receive him by faith as a personal savior in in the better covenant we are cleansed from sin by the blood of the lamb what do you hear in this passage what do you hear was it confusing was it clear was it i think it's a little hocus pocus it's some kind of little magic that just changes automatically, but there's 
the individual is involved in that process. What did you hear? This is a classic. This passages like this are classic for the traditional explanations of salvation. But but it, but this passage actually has has the elements of truth right in it if we understand what it means. So what did you hear? It says, um, notice that Christ is our substitute for what? What is he a substitute for? Penalty is a, a traditional way of, of explaining it and often said that there's a penalty that has to be paid and, and when the penalty is paid. But notice that the, the passage actually didn't say that. The passage didn't say that at all. It says, Christ has fulfilled the law for the transgression of the law if they receive him by faith as personal Savior. In the better covenant, notice this. This is the key. In the better covenant, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Notice. The true covenant actually does something to the sinner. Transforms, regenerates, cleanses. Um, We become, as the scripture says, partaker of the divine nature. The law is written on the heart and mind in the new covenant, uh, Hebrews 8, 10. So, what are the conditions for healing and restoration? Yes? That we, that we accept fully Christ's substitutionary life as well as his death. He not only substitutes a, for us in death with the penalty, but also in life, the life that we should have lived, he lives for us. Then, by accepting him, we get credit for what he's done that we have failed at. Excellent explanation of the classic explanations. Did you all hear that? You know, he says that we accept fully what Christ has done, his substitutionary role, and then when we do, we get credit for Christ's perfect role. That's not actually what she said. It's actually not what Scripture teaches either. That's what tradition has taught. That's what tradition has taught. Well said, well said, because it helps us contrast. Um, let, let's... let's uh, well, if you think of the metaphors and the descriptions of Scripture, think of them. What is the salvation process? It's new heart and right spirit, removing the stony heart, putting in a heart of flesh, writing the law upon the tablets of the heart, having the mind of Christ, having circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit, being reborn, being regenerate. I mean, uh, every one of the descriptions is a process happening where? inside the believer themselves. You notice the scriptures don't actually say when you accept, um, when you accept the, 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 the Lord that in heaven we get a notation on your record book that says you now have legal pardon. It doesn't say that in scripture. Scripture is all about changing and transforming us. So somehow Christ's victory, which we could not attain, when we come in faith, in relationship and trust him, results in a change actually in us. We get changed. We get reborn. We get regenerated. We get recreated. We get the mind of Christ. Let's add some more text to this. Oh, and and the conditions, it says, I said, what were the conditions of healing and restoration according to this passage up here? It said, perfect obedience to the law of God. Why? Well, let's see if if you answer this question. What are the, if somebody is sick and in the hospital and dying of a disease, and I said, what are the conditions for healing and restoration of that person? Obedience to the laws of health, right? Can a person get well outside the laws of health? You know, if somebody is uh, if somebody refuses to eat, 
Somebody refuses to take hydration. Somebody refuses to breathe. These are laws of health, okay? Can somebody get well in violations of the laws of health? Or does perfect health result by restoring the functions of the body to perfect harmony with God's design for them to function? Is that not what restores health? Inside the laws of health. So we can't be healthy outside the laws of health. We can only be healthy inside the laws of health. Does that make sense? Well, isn't that true spiritually too? We can't have spiritual, mental health if we're breaking God's design for the way things are designed to function. It may be a simpler analogy. You, you buy, buy a new car, whatever car. Well, we're in Chattanooga, so we'll say a, a, a Volkswagen. Okay? You buy a new Volkswagen, and the manufacturer has designed it to run on unleaded fuel. It built it, it designed it, it's, it's, it's to run on this fuel, and you decide to break the design for this car, and you instead put diesel in it or kerosene in it. Now, you're free to do that, aren't you? What will happen if you do that? It wasn't designed to run in that way. It wasn't built to run in that way. And when you do that, it breaks it down and destroys it. Likewise, we were designed to run in harmony with God's character of love. That was the building protocols for all life in the universe, to run in perfect harmony with the one who built everything, his character of love. When we step outside of that, the only thing that happens is pain and suffering and death. So, Christ came to achieve what we could not, a perfect humanity. And what do we receive when we are in union with Christ? Well, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them the heart of stone and give them the heart of flesh. Deuteronomy 10, 16. A man is not a Jew. Uh, if he, uh, this is actually Deuteronomy 10, 16, as well as Roman, quoting, quoted by Romans 2, 29. A man is not a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not in the written code. Hebrews 8.10, the new covenant written on the law, uh, laws written on the heart. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. For Second Peter 1.4, that we become partakers of the divine nature, partakers of the divine nature. Do you believe that this is describing something that actually happens inside the individual believer? Or is this just something that's declared in a record book setting in a courtroom in heaven? Is it, is it real inside the believer? Yeah. And remember the metaphor. The metaphor, your child's dying of an illness. You heard of a doctor, and all the doctors you know told, tell them that there's nothing they can do. He's terminal. You ever hear of a doctor out west that everybody that goes to that doctor comes with a clean bill of health? So you take your child. You, hand, you bring with you the medical records. The medical records documenting the biopsies, the MRIs, the scans, all the lab work showing the pathology and how far it spread. The doctor takes the record, opens it up, pops open, starts taking out all the record of disease, sticking in clean white sheets of paper, hands it back to you and says, see, no more record of disease. Are you happy? This is what a lot of people teach in the heavenly sanctuary doctrine. That what's going on in heaven right now is record books and heavens are being cleansed. That God is going through the record books and he's erasing records of sins. Do you see a problem with that? Now, what happens if you go to your doctor with the same records, same sick child dying, the doctor looks at the records, but then gets up and goes over to the child and begins to intervene in the child with a remedy that puts the cancer into remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. You see? Christ died to put sin into remission, to remit it back so that our hearts and minds remit back to God's original design as he created mankind and Adam to be. So the record books will now show, the medical record shows the sickness and the pathology, the medical record shows the medical intervention and treatment, and the medical, medical record now shows there is no more sickness and treatment in the child's well. 
This is how God cleanses the books in heaven. The only way he can cleanse your heavenly record book is by cleansing your heart and mind here on earth. Because what's in the heavenly records is an exact transcript of who you are in heart and mind. That's what's there. And so he has to heal you. Yes? Yes, but when I said that we must accept Jesus' substitutionary life in place of our own, that means we have to do the things, we have to follow him and do the things that he prescribes. I mean, it's, it's like I used to say to my patients, it seems like you all want to be saved, and I used to use it, this metaphor, I said, you want to be saved in your sins as opposed to be saved from your sins. When it came to things like smoking and drinking and things, I said, there, you know, there are things you can do, there are things I can help you with, but ultimately you have to change, and we can work things out with the no smoking program, there are various things we can do with, with alcohol, there's medications we can prescribe that help cut down the the urge for it, but if you're if you're an alcoholic, you can't hang out in bars. You know, you, you don't want to hang around your smoking friends all the time if you're trying to quit smoking. You know, there's you know th- there are certain things that are incumbent upon us that in order to accept Jesus fully, we have to to do with that. We cannot. So let's see if this follows in with what you're saying. Christ object lessons three eleven because I think this is what you're trying to say right here. It says when we submit our lives to Christ, the heart is united with His heart, the will is merged in His will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. That, this is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Notice where the cleansing is taking place. What this gentleman said earlier about when you really want it, there's a change of desire that eventually comes. That's what's being described here. We actually, through participating with Christ, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ has achieved and actually reproduces it in us. We become like Christ in heart, mind, and character. We keep our own individuality. We keep our own personality. But selfishness is expunged, and love for God and others comes in, and we develop a character that looks like Christ. Yes? I read something this week that I thought was really significant for this topic of addictions. Um, Jesus was talking to Pilate, and he said, Desire of Ages 7.27, that Jesus desired Pilate to understand that only by receiving and appropriating truth could his ruined nature be reconstructed. We have to be lovers of truth. Understanding and receiving and applying truth to our lives. This is on all levels. This is on all levels. If You know, I had a patient who believed that smoking helped her lungs work better. Now, she was free to believe it, but until she comes to appreciate and apply the truth, she's not going to get better, is she? And, and so that truth has to be not only just understood, it's not truth understood, it's truth applied. I, I have a patient that sees me for any disease. Let's say, let's say pneumonia, an easy, easy one. Uh, and I diagnose it correctly. And I write a prescription for antibiotics that, that will cure this pneumonia. And I explain the disease to the patient. The patient understands that they've got pneumonia. And they understand the antibiotic. And they believe me. And they trust me. And they understand the truth. And they go home and they stick the, the antibiotics on the refrigerator and don't take them. Will their belief in the truth and trust in me get them well if they don't take the antibiotics? No, this is a lot of Christians. They believe Jesus died for them. They believe they're a sinner. They believe that there's salvation in Christ. They believe all these things, but they still don't choose to apply it to their life. So there's no transformation coming. Do you see how you can trust and believe without choosing to apply? Yes. I wonder sometimes if that somehow gets twisted around with the Protestant thinking of salvation by, by grace alone without words. What you're describing in the application process is something we have to do. Exactly. If somebody could misunderstand that and say, oh, wait a minute, you're trying to save yourself by your works. We don't want to do that. Well, so, so let's be clear. 
Does the, sin, does the sick person who takes the antibiotics, do they work to make the antibiotics? No. no. They don't work to make them. See, the remedy for sin was achieved by Christ. No human can add to what Christ has done. But we have to choose to participate in with what Christ has done. So let me give these, let's, let's see if we can see the balance here. This is Lift Him Up, page 193. While God was working in Daniel and his companions to will and good, do according to his good pleasure, they were working out their own salvation. Herein is revealed the outworking of a divine principle of cooperation, without which true success, without which no true success can be attained. Human effort avails nothing without divine power. And without human endeavor, divine effort is with many to no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must put, we must act our part. And this is out of um, Mind, Character, Personality, second volume, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. 1 Corinthians 3.9. Man is to work with the faculties God has given him to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. And then our high calling, page 3.10. There are two grand forces, two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies, divine influence, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. Think that through. This blind, stupid faith. That's what she's saying. He does not... He does not dishonor the human understanding. But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truths as it is in Jesus. Does this make sense to you all? Can Jesus save any human being without the cooperation of that human being? Can a human being save themselves? No, it's, it's a cooperative effort. So the balance as I see it, here's the balance. The remedy to sin was fully achieved by Christ and no one else. There is no human work or effort that we can do to improve or add to the remedy to sin. And then Christ became part of humanity and, and, and as a human substitute took the place where we were for the purpose of two things, revealing the truth about God and exposing Satan as a liar and fraud, the revelation aspect, and two, achieving actual remedy to sin, fixing what sin d- did to humanity and restoring perfectly humanity back into God's ideal in his own journey and walk. And then three, we, so we can do nothing to add to it, each person must open their heart and trust God in order to receive the Holy Spirit and the benefits of what Christ achieved and then when we do this, a supernatural transformation takes place. What we read earlier, the desires are changed, the motives are changed, and all these things are changed. And in this process, there's a daily, ongoing, constant, cooperative work of the individual with the divine as we continue to choose to follow the prescription that our heavenly doctor has told us to do. Does this make sense? Yes? 
Do you think a non-Christian who has the willpower to overcome some addiction actually has the Holy Spirit helping him even though he doesn't realize it? If he's actually being truly free, it, yes. You cannot be free from any uh, sin or addiction. With, and truly free. What happens a lot of times, though, is they substitute addictions. They move from one addiction that's more destructive to a different addiction that's less socially uh, uh, deplored or destructive. And so it's addiction substitution is what happens in a lot of, 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 the, of the programs. Okay, so what is an addiction? Here's a definition of addiction. Not, not a specific, but a definition. This definition, in my opinion, applies to addictions, whatever they are. The compulsive engagement in behaviors that have short-term reward but bring long-term destruction. The compulsive engagement in behaviors that bring short-term reward, that have short-term reward, but bring long-term destruction. Do you all see that? And then with that definition in mind, well, I'm going to name the obvious ones. Alcohol, tobacco, drugs, sex, porn, and gambling. Now, what else is left? Work, food, TV, Exercise. exercise, religious pursuits, video gaming, video gaming, texting, okay, okay, the latest version, huh? Uh, do you, uh, compulsive, but remember, uh, a habit is not, a, is not an addiction. Compulsive engagement in behaviors with short-term rewards that bring long-term destruction. So you have to have both elements. Uh, Just because it's compulsive and has reward, if it doesn't have long-term destruction, you say then it's not an addiction. It has to have both. Okay, so... Um, Sunday's lesson tells us to read Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. And and listen to this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample the bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. Ooh, ooh, see, like this, okay? Uh, They hit me, (laughs) they hit me, you will say, but I am not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? And if uh, you've ever been around some people who were drunk, and I worked in, uh, in, in med school, we, we had a uh, section of the ER dedicated to sewing up the drunks. There was four gurneys that third-year medical students would man all night long, starting at about sunset on Friday night, going all the way till wee hours in the morning on Sunday morning, and there'd be four of us in there suturing, four people at a time, and there would be a line of 50 people out the thing on gurneys waiting to come in and get sutured from all the drunk knife and bottle fights going on in Memphis every Friday and Saturday night. And many times, 
Um, many times, now some, some of the people were, were innocent victims just getting attacked by the, the drunks, and they weren't intoxicated. And those guys we would have to um, sew up, I mean, we'd have to numb up before we'd sew them up. But many of the drunks would come in, and they were so intoxicated that we didn't have to put any numbing medicine in at all. We could just sew them without any numbing, and they were just out of it, and they didn't feel a thing. Okay? This is what it says right here. They hit me, but I am not hurt. They beat me, and I don't feel it. Exactly right. It's an anesthetic. Okay. So, anybody seen that before? Yeah, it's not a pretty thing, is it? So, dangers of alcohol. The average American, the average age of the first drink of alcohol in America for American people, Americans, age 12 for first drink of alcohol in America. 20% of teens, one in five between the age of 12 and 20, are binge drinkers. One in five are binge drinkers from the age of 20. Adolescent drinkers scored worse than non-users on vocabulary testing, general information testing, memory and memory retrieval, and at least other, three other tests of cognitive function. Uh, they perform worse in school, are more likely to fall behind, and have an increased risk of social problems, depression, suicidal thoughts, and violence. Does that surprise anyone? No. Alcohol affects the sleep cycles, result, resulting in impaired learning. It's not just for adolescents, it's for anybody. If you drink because you can't sleep and you're using alcohol to drink, you're altering sleep architecture, results in impaired learning and impaired memory, as well as disrupt, disrupted release of natural body hormones um, necessary for healthy growth and maturation. Alcohol use increases the risk of stroke among young drinkers. Alcohol while pregnant increases the risk of their offspring having psychosis later in life, psychotic disorders. It actually alters the gene expression on the gustatory, t- uh, the, the taste sensations of the mouth, so that children whose mothers drank alcohol while pregnant, when they grow up, alcohol will actually taste better to them. It alters the, the, what you taste. Well, this is what my mom is, is cluing me in on what's healthy environment, and so your genes change and express, so when you grow up, alcohol will taste better than if your mother didn't drink when she was pregnant with you. Isn't that wild? So you're going to be more vulnerable to drink. Tastes good. Okay? Mental retardation, of course, is increased if mom drinks while you're pregnant. Multiple organ def- defects. If it's high drinking, fetal alcohol syndrome. But that's all we know. It's high, heavy drinking. Everybody, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about one drink, one glass of wine a week or less? One glass of wine a week or less while pregnant. That probably couldn't cause any problems, could it? One glass of wine a week or less? Well, if you do that, your, your children end up being shorter with smaller heads. They have more behavior problems, more delinquency in school, have more emotional uh, and mental health problems than if you had no alcohol while pregnant. And I put in the notes all the references to the various uh, medical journals, pediatrics and other journals, that document all this, uh, all this research. Interestingly enough, alcohol also alters which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off in the fear circuitry of your brain. So that, and I've got the details in the notes, but basically it alters protein production in the fear circuits of your brain so that um, it shuts off um, proteins that keep the, the, the fear circuits calm. Thus, when the alcohol's not around, you're more anxious and stressed and worried, and you think you need more alcohol to calm yourself because it's altering which genes are turned off and which genes are turned on in the fear circuits of your brain. Got that in the notes with the references as well. So, alcohol damages the brain, alters uh, fetal development, alters gene expression, impairs thinking, increases anxiety, increases the firing of the fear circuitry. Any, any, when do you want to speak in favor of alcohol? Yes. I don't want to speak in favor of it. I just wondered if 
<laughs> if a mother decides she wants to get pregnant, she's been using alcohol and decides three months prior to pregnancy, I'm not going to drink anymore until you know the baby's born. Is that enough to not cause damage? Or is it is much better. Absolutely, there'll be a much better outcome there than if she kept drinking. Right. Um, will there be a healthy outcome had she never drank? Um, no. When we, when we injure ourselves with tobacco, for instance, um, they, boys who smoke before the age of 12 will alter gene expression in their Y chromosomes. Uh, so even if they stop smoking, and uh, later on, their sons and grandsons will have higher rates of obesity and diabetes than if they'd never smoked. Okay, so there, there's, there's, we change ourselves. The way God designed us is we are designed for adaptation. We actually have a, a change, not just in neural circuitry, but all the way down to the genes. The gene instructions will change based on, the, based on the things we experience and do. And then when we have kids, we pass on not just the gene sequence, but the layer of instructions that sit above the genes telling the genes how to express themselves are passed along. That layer of instructions are, are constantly being altered by experience. So if you are converted, and this is, the, what the, this is what the commandment means, when it says, um, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers unto the sons to the third and fourth generation, these type of epigenetic changes sitting above the genes pass down three and four generations, just like the commandment. Pa- uh, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the sons to the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, but showing mercy to a thousand generations of them that love me. And what, what we were discovering in science is absolutely true. Those that hate God don't trust him, right? So they don't cooperate with him. They don't follow his methods and principles. They don't give up the destructive behaviors. They don't let the Holy Spirit come in and change their heart. So there's no transformation of the epigenetic destructive pathways. However, those who maybe come from a family in which there were drugs and alcohol use and they've got some unhealthy epigenetic instructions who give their heart to Christ, two things happen. One, they begin living a healthier lifestyle. That in its own right will alter the gene expressions back in a healthier direction. And two, uh, they will actually change the firing of the neural circuits such that the love circuits start firing which calm the fear circuits, and that will have a cascade which will alter the gene expression, and the destructive cycle gets broken, and you can pass on a better instruction to your kids. So mercy is shown when we cooperate with God, all the way down to the physical level. It's it's just fascinating stuff. Don't you find it fascinating? Yeah. All right, so alcohol. So we understand alcohol damages. If we understand all that, then how do we make sense of Proverbs 31? It is not for kings, O Lemuel, uh, nor for kings to drink wine or rulers to crave beer, lest they forget what the, what the law decrees and deprive all the, uh, the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing and wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't want to just take, pick and choose Scripture here and there. We want to be balanced, don't we? So we should take all the Scripture. What does this mean? Do we follow? Should we? Do we follow this biblical advice today? How about when we give cough syrup to someone who's sick? Anybody ever done that? Most of them are suspended in 20% alcohol. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Yeah, 20% alcohol. See, what he's talking about here, give it to those who are suffering and misery and perishing. He's talking about using alcohol as a medicinal agent, a medicine, to somebody who's sick, who's in pain, who's suffering. How about back in, um, back in the Civil War, if uh, somebody uh, had a bullet wound and their leg needed to be amputated, uh, would you prefer them to get you drunk till you pass out first or just have four strong guys hold you down while they cut your leg off? Okay? Yes. See, alcohol can be used as a medicinal agent. That's the principle here. And fortunately today, we're living in an era where we have much better medicines most of the, 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 uh, most of the time than alcohol. But that's, that's the only principle. 
Okay, fourth paragraph. I wanted to clarify this. Listen to what this says. Alcohol, as well as other psychoactive substances, will affect our ability to make the correct moral choices. Under the influence, folks are likely to slip deeper and deeper into sin. That was a red flag to me. Psychoactive substances? Shouldn't it have said alcohol and other psychoactive substances of abuse? Didn't say that. Do you understand antidepressants are psychoactive, psychoactive substances? Antipsychotic medicines are psychoactive substances. And it's saying declaratively that all psychoactive substances make you more likely to sin. This is, this is the way it's written, false. Somebody who's psychotic and delusional and hearing voices and you put them on you know, antipsychotic medicines so you restore their reason and capacity to think are less likely. Um, people with attention deficit disorder who have dysfunctional prefrontal cortex so they can't restrain their impulses and, and they act out and blurt out, they are much more likely to have addiction problems if their ADHD is not treated because they can't restrain the impulse of the limbic system. If you treat their ADHD with a psychoactive substance, turning on the prefrontal cortex, which governs and restrains, then they're able to process and say no and they're less likely to have addiction issues. This has been well studied in chemical addiction issues that ADHD people untreated with their stimulant medication have much higher rates of addictions than if you treat them with stimulants, they, are able, they have much less rates of addiction. So what does that tell you? Not all psychoactive substances increase your risk of sinning. If you, uh, and same thing with antidepressants. They, they turn on the healthy regions of the brain and calm the fear circuitry. Yes? Can you take that a step further and, and suggest that a belief in the truth about God is a psychoactive agent and less likely to lead you into sin? Yeah, I would say that's true, other than uh, we weren't talking a chemical agent. And they, they were talking chemical agents here. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Okay, so let's go on to, let's go on to Monday's lesson, which is sex addiction and porn, porn addiction. Average American teen watches 15,000 sexual acts per year on broadcast television. 15,000, the average teen, 15,000 sexual acts per year on regular broadcast television. Children don't differentiate between the reality and TV uh, as easily. Uh, media normalizes premarital sex and sexual behavior, and so teens get the idea that if they're not having sex, there must be something wrong with them because everybody else is. Uh, teen programming has more sexual content than adult programming does, but most of it is not responsible. Two-thirds of teens have seen pornography on the Internet. Two out of three. Three out of the six major networks will not allow advertising for condoms or birth control, yet allow ads for male enhancement drugs. <laughs> See, irresponsible behaviors allowed, responsible behaviors not. Six studies document that the higher exposure to regular television, media, sexual content, the earlier kids have sex. So the more they watch the earlier they'll, they'll have sex. Uh, you know that pornography is a $57 billion worldwide industry, and the revenue is larger than football, baseball, basketball, NBC, ABC, and all that stuff combined. Um, 4.2 million pornographic websites, which is 12% of the web. 68 million daily porn web searches, which is 25% of the web searches. 20% of men visit porn at work. 47% of Christians say porn is a major problem in their home. Visitors to porn sites, 72% male, 28% female. 1996 Promise Keepers survey at one of their stadiums revealed that over 50% of the men in attendance at Promise Keepers were involved with pornography within one week of attending the event. 51% of pastors, pastors say cyber porn is a temptation to them, and 37% are currently addicted to porn.
37% of pastors, one in three. According to Christianity Today Leadership Survey 2001. Over half of evangelical pastors admitted to viewing porn last year. Uh, Roger uh, Charman, uh, uh, a focus on the family. Uh, Pastoral Ministries reports that 20% of the calls received to their pastoral Carolina for help with pornography issues and compulsive sexual behavior. In 2000, Christianity Today survey, 33% of clergy admit to having visited uh, a sexually explicit website. Of those who had visited a porn site, 53% had visited such sites a few times, and 18% visit explicit sites a couple times a month or more, or or more than once a week. That's that's, uh, pastors. Uh, 29% of born-again adults in the U.S. feel it is morally acceptable, 29%, but basically a third, uh, feel it is morally acceptable to view movies with explicit sexual behavior. And then, um, so, do we have a problem? Do we have a problem? You see, we look back in the Bible times in which Israel kept going after false gods, kept going after Baal worship and Ashtoreth worship. Do you understand that this worship, how a worshiper worshipped back then? They would bring their animal sacrifice or their monetary contribution to the temple for worship and then pick the cult prostitute they wanted and go have sex with her. That's what was going on with Ashtoreth and Baal and these cult worship systems. It was a sexual fertility rite worship. They understand why attendance was high. This is why Israel was having a problem. There was addiction issues going on here. Does this give us insight as to, have you ever wondered why God told, told uh, the Israelites to have circumcision, Abraham? You ever wondered about that? Yeah. What was the purpose? Do you think God in his foreknowledge understood the risks that were going to come to his people? The temptations of these cults? And do you think as, as maybe uh, 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 at the last minute God was trying to give every opportunity for, for, this, uh, for this person to have a motivation to, to avoid such behavior? So at the last moment as he's in his, uh, in his worship cult experience, uh, the, the, the cult prostitute says, oh, I notice you're Jewish. Oops, maybe I shouldn't be here. You see, it's easy, it's, it's, you, can't, you can't really hide your identity in a... In a, in a place of worship like that if you're circumcised, can you? You can't pretend you're not Jewish. You think maybe God was just giving them an avenue through which it would help them not participate in that. Just a possibility. Yes. It's interesting the, um, you know, the text that we like to quote about the hills, you know, come to my help. The implied answer to that is no. Right, right. That's right. You know, we're not going to the hills where we have all this, this um, prostitutionary worship. My help is from the Lord, yet we have used it as some other text. Listen to this in, in Monday's lesson. God is willing to grant full pardon and freedom to anyone trapped in sexual addictions. Think that through. God is willing to grant full pardon and freedom. Is uh, someone entrapped in any addiction, sexual addiction, any addiction? is the obstacle that, that they need to have removed in order for them to have freedom, a legal pardon from God. If, if God would only pardon me, if I can only get that legal pardon, then I could be out of this problem. Is that what's holding them back? No. They, they, said, they suggest this as, this as this God's forgiveness is somehow, you know, oh, be assured you can, you can get a pardon. That's not the problem. It's never the problem. Was, was God's forgiving the sinner ever a, an issue? 
No, God's forgiving of us was, was instant as a parent instantly forgives a disobedient child. The problem is in us. We weren't changed. We weren't regenerated. We weren't repentant. Not God's attitude was never necessary. Christ's death was never necessary to achieve God's forgiveness, even though it's taught that way. It was necessary to achieve our redemption, our transformation, our healing, our reconciliation with God, our renewal, our freedom from sin. It was necessary for that, not necessary to get God to forgive. What is the number one obstacle, the number one obstacle that is in the way of any addict experiencing freedom? The number one obstacle. Self. Self. Exactly right. Faith I live by 87. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle, but the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. And this is the greatest battle. I deal with addicts all the time. And there's some that come to me, and when they come, they're broken. They, they've reached bottom. Their life has been ruined. They've lost their wife. They've lost their kids. They've lost their family. They've lost their job. They, they've spent some time in jail for, for this or that. They are, they are ruined men or women, and they're at the bottom, and they have nothing left to cling to. Oftentimes, though, and, and they, those guys don't want to hold on to self anymore. They realize self sucks. Self only hurts. They want freedom. Those guys are ready to start a new path and a new life, and they do. But I have many people with addiction issues that come somewhere before that point of really wanting to die to self, and they still think they can handle it. They still think it's not that bad. They still think they can hold on to their addiction and hold on to whatever it is they don't want to lose, their wife, their kids, their family, their job. They still play this delusional game with themselves. And so they, they have this attitude of anger, irritability. When you, when you tell them about this, they, they get defensive because, you know, who are you? What can you say? I can handle it. You don't know me. Oh, I know. So sometimes people have to hit bottom before they're willing to, to start the path. Loved ones, if you have loved ones that are in addictions, you've probably seen this if you tried to talk to them. You tried to encourage them. You get the resistance. You get the anger. You get the walls going up. You get the denial because they're not ready yet. They're still holding on to self. Self isn't ready to die and be renewed. This is the big problem. Denial. I don't have a problem. I can handle it. Have you heard it? I hear, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. What do those who engage in porn need to do within their own minds to begin moving away from pleasure in porn? Any thoughts? Yes. See it, see it as something unhealthy, evil, or unattractive. Okay, so, so ch- I like that very much. That's right. They have to see it differently than they see it. Yes. I think one of the myths is that it's seen as a victimless act. There you go. Now, this is the key. This is the key. And I've done this with patients. I've come to see me struggling with porn. And after working with them a little while, I tell them, imagine this. Imagine you're on the video website and you're flipping from image to image. And the next one you flip up is, a, is an image of, of your 19-year-old daughter. Instantly. <gasps> I said, you mean that wouldn't be enjoyable to you? Oh, he's, it make me sick. I, feel, I, I just feel nauseated even thinking about it. Well, why? You see, the, the porn addict who has a daughter would never want his daughter on the porn website, ever. It makes him sick to think of it. Why? Why? Because he loves his daughter and what's good for the daughter. And, and, and when you engage in porn, you can only do it as you disconnect humanity from the objects of your pleasure. These are no longer human beings. They don't have lives. They don't matter. They're objects there to please you. You dehumanize them. 
You don't consider their health, their welfare. But if you think about them as, and I said to my, my one patient, I said this to, I said, you know, every one of those women you look at is somebody's daughter. I said, if you love them. So, so the issue they have to change is they have to stop seeing the people, the object of their desire as, as non-human and start thinking of them, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. Think loving thoughts for these people. Who are they? What have they gone through? Um, do you realize that what 30 or 40% of people in the porn industry are there by coercive pressure, not by their own will? They're being exploited, taking advantage of them in some way? Imagine if that was your daughter. How would you feel? Even if she told you she's making great money, how would you feel? Wouldn't you be just heartbroken? Well, think about every one of them. You can't enjoy it. The joy goes away. It's, it becomes revolting and disgusting. This is a big key. It has to change in the mind of the porn addict. Tuesdays, lesson talks about gambling. 85% of U.S. adults have gambled at least once in their life. 80% in the last year. This was a, a poll of uh, Problem Gambling, gambling two, uh, Awareness Week 2011, January 2011. College graduates, 24% are significantly more likely than non-graduates to gamble. So 24% of college graduates to be problem gamblers were, were 14% of non-college graduates, according to a Gallup poll of 2008. But gambling, occur, gambling occurs at a higher percentage in high-income homes. High-income homes. 72% versus... Uh, 55%. What do you think the, uh, the grand total of legal gambling in the U.S. is on an annual basis? How much money is generated? This is income after paying out all the people who win. $92 billion a year for legal gambling income from all sources. This includes card rooms, commercial casinos, charitable games and bingo, Indian casinos, legal bookmaking lotteries, uh, paramutual betting wagers, which are like, uh, you know, uh, tracks and things like that. So... The question to you is, excluding all the things I just said, all those forms of gambling, um, what, what, what else would be considered gambling besides the casinos, lotteries, bookmaking, tracks? What else is gambling today? Stock market. Thank you. Stock market. You understand stock market is, is, a, is a place where you guys, you, you can go to the stock market and you can buy short, you can buy long. In other words, you can gamble. You can take a stock and say, I'm going to buy $1,000 short which means I'm predicting that in the next such period that you put on there, that that stock is going to fall in value. If it falls in value, you get paid. If it doesn't, you lose your money. You can predict long. means I'm going to predict it's going to go up in a certain period. And if it goes up, you get paid. If it doesn't, it goes, you, you lose your money. So people are gambling. You're not actually investing in anything. You're gambling on whether the stock is going to go up or down. No investment. Just, and people do this all the time. And so people make tons of money. And this is how people manipulate the system. Um, they will bet a stock short. And then if they can, they'll manipulate the, the, um, the media in some way. If they can manipulate the media to have some, some critical story come out about a particular stock, like Steve Jobs is going to retire from Apple. Okay? If you knew that ahead of time, this is inside, and you buy short just before that comes out, and the stock falls the next day because of that, boom, you just made a bunch of money. It's all gambling. Yeah. How about gambling with life choices? Gambling with who you pick up at the bar and go home with that night. Is that a gamble? Yeah. How about Russian roulette? Do you know people still play that game? Yeah, crazy. Uh, relationships. So what is it that fuels the behavior of gamblers? What fuels, what drives it? What's the undercurrent energy that drives that? Objective intelligence? Good reasoning and rational behavior? 
Some may, some may. There, there are professional gamblers who calculate and plan and strategize, um, and they make a living at it. But generally, that's not what drives most gamblers. What is it? A desire for some form of self-enhancement. This is what drives it. They feel inadequate, insecure, and they want to enhance self in some way. Something to give self a boost, advantage, either money, fame, power. It's a selfish motive. We're feeling insecure. If I can only get this, I can get more money. I can be a winner. See, I'm a lo- I can be a winner. Okay? Combined with, that desire combined with self-deception, which in your imagination, gamblers only imagine primarily the fantasy, the, the imaginary future of the win. They don't equally give equal credence to the likelihood of the loss in their imagination. So it's the desire of enhancement with the, the vision of what it's going to be like when they, when they win the big one. Um, and reinforced by the very act of gambling itself, which is, re, uh, which is intermittent success. Intermittent success. So you do it for a while, you do it for a while. If you, if you never, ever won, there'd be no gamblers. Because even this fantasy of success would be extinguished by reality if you never, ever won. But the intermittent reinforcement, winning randomly with uncertainty, with unpredictability, keeps alive that idea that, well, the next one could be the one. The next one could be the one. I could get it. I could get it. I could hit it big. Yes. The lottery is a tax on those who do not believe in math. Yeah. The lottery is a tax on those who do not believe in math. Yeah. Yeah, what's the odds of winning the big one? Was it like one in 300 million or something like that? Or higher than that even, isn't it? It's like, it's like if every person in the United States bought a raffle ticket at your church and you had one of 309 million tickets, your odds of winning that raffle is better than winning the lottery. Because it's even higher than that that you win the lottery. <laughs> yes, you had to comment? Yeah, I was going to point out that, that intermittent reward, that's one of the things you learn early in your in psychology, that those are the hardest behaviors to ever wipe out. You know, those are the ones that, that a person is more likely to keep doing. That's correct. The ones where they get rewarded all the time. That's so correct. they don't get rewarded, they quit. But those that get the intermediate, intermittent rewards are the hardest. That's time. exactly right. Now, I have, to, and I have to get this in before it closes, on, uh, before it closes on Thursday's, Thursday's lesson. We're jumping to Thursday, which is about personal image. Personal image. And the lesson... And the second paragraph states, the intensive desire to become more beautiful has the risk of becoming addictive. Some develop exercise addiction. Others, addiction to eat as little, uh, as little, a little less each time to the point of endangering their lives. Others may become obsessed with their hair or skin, submitting themselves to sophisticated and costly um, um, treatments. You know, and, and they suggested in the lesson this idea of our bodies uh, becoming an idol. And I just wanted to point out that body dysmorphic disorder and anorexia, eating disorders like this, are not addictions. Addictions are sought for the purpose of some type of um, reward. There's some reward involved in the addiction, primary reward. And anorexics and body dysmorphics don't get that primary reward. In fact, these are just the opposite. These are seated on deep-seated insecurities, anxieties, and fears that have distorted images, typically related to some psychological traumas or problems earlier in life, and were unable to resolve directly. And so these these stressors were channeled into some um, dissatisfaction with the body in some way, and then they try to resolve the anxiety with self through uh, managing the body in some way. While uh, the addict is see- seeks a high, a thrill, escape stress to calm self with a chemical substance, these, uh, the anorectic and body-, body dysmorphic persons actually suffer greatly 
from their, their, their psychological compromise and the behaviors that they, they choose to engage in. So I just want to make that distinction, that anyone read this and not draw the conclusion. Um, obsessive, uh, the um, anorexics and the um, body dysmorphics are much more likely associated with obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's much more closely related. It's an anxiety disorder. It's not a, an addiction disorder. So at the end of the lesson in the notes, I put in the 12 steps of the, of the recovery, and I was going to talk to you about how these are biblical principles. All the 12 steps of the 12 steps, if you've ever looked at them, and I've listed them, are the uh, biblical principles of salvation and regeneration and renewal. And then I put in there some steps to recovery. Why is it when a gambler wins, they don't walk away with their winnings? They put it right back in the machine. Um, because there's this aspect of an emotional thrill that they get from it. When they win, they get this high, and they will often go and celebrate the win, depending on the size of the win, and then they want to go back for more. When they want to go back for more... It's, it's Money is only part of it. It's about the thrill of the win because there's an insecurity, an ego issue problem that needs constant reinforcement so they can feel good about themselves. Every time they win, they feel good because they're not actually at peace with themselves. That makes sense? All right, let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided Jesus Christ to win the victory over sin and sinfulness that we could not win. He's brought us truth about you to help to purge the lies and distortions from our minds so that we know you are completely on our side and you always have been. There was never a time that you were, were not for us. Lord, we, we ask that your spirit will, will come to us, enlighten our minds to, to see the truth, bring conviction to the inadequacy of our own efforts to try and fix and change ourselves and let us come and trust to you that we can open our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit who will take what Christ has, has achieved and reproduce it in us. We ask that you will write your law of love on our hearts and minds. May our, our desires come in harmony with yours. Our thoughts be pure to be like yours. May our motives be changed to be like yours. May we live your life going forward, sharing the truth about you with others that the world may be lightened with your glory and we can see you soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.